We live in a culture that says that joy is found in accumulation. And yet we serve and worship a God who says that joy is found in sacrifice. Our world says you'll find joy in getting more. Christ says you will find true joy in giving more. With those thoughts in mind, would you open to Philippians chapter 1? We're going to begin to walk through this short four-chapter book, 104 verses before us. There is a lot in these pages that probably are about two, two and a half pages in your Bible. We're going to go deep and we're going to stay a long time in this book because I believe God has a word for our church through this season. I've entitled this series, Gospel Joy, and here's where we're headed. Throughout the book of Philippians, you find this amazing link between the gospel of Jesus Christ and abiding, lasting joy. In fact, what we're going to see is there are a number of different places where the joy and the gospel come together. A number of different connecting points that we're going to see where the joy of Christ and the gospel of Christ walk hand in hand with one another. And here, here is my challenge for you today from the very beginning. You're supposed to save the challenges till the end of the message, but I'm going right after it this morning. If you bought in to a gospel that did not bear with it joy, then I am urging you to make a trade today. Because the Apostle Paul is going to set before us a gospel that is wrapped up in, founded upon, and birthing out abounding joy. It's unmistakable. We live in, in, a, in a cultural Christianity here in America where we see Christians as the most humdrum people that you've ever known. We walk around like Eeyore with the cloud over our heads. The sky is falling. The world is ending. We complain just like everybody else does about the evening news. We are wrapped up and concerned about things that we shouldn't be wrapped up and concerned about. And we've missed the joy of the gospel. Once again, I want to say to you this morning, if you bought into a gospel that did not bear with it abounding, lasting joy, then make a trade this morning because you bought a false gospel. I know that's a very bold statement, but I'm urging you to examine your walk with the Lord today. If you've got Eeyore Christianity today, Philippians is going to turn that on its head. We're not talking about circumstantial happiness here. We're talking about abiding joy. That's much better. So with that being said, if you're able... To stand this morning, would you do so in honor of God's word? We're going to talk about today the joy of partnering in the gospel. This is the first link between joy and the gospel is this idea of partnership. And I hope you'll see it as we walk through these opening verses together. This is the word of God. It's written, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. This is who wrote the letter. Paul, Timothy was happened to be with him. 
to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. These are the recipients of the letter. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. A very typical greeting from Paul there. And he goes on in verse 3. Listen to his words. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Listen to his heart in verse 7. It's right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. You can be seated this morning. Father God, as we explore today this joy of gospel partnership, as we speak together about the koinonia, the commonness that we share with one another in Christ, as we begin to examine this joy that's, that's inextricably linked to your gospel. God, I pray for transformation to take place today. For those who have bought into a joyless gospel, I pray that they would make a divine exchange today. For those who have seen Christianity as a humdrum experience full of gloom and despair, God, may we see and be restored and renewed in the joy of our salvation. And may we look to the one who for the joy set before him endured the cross for us. Lead us to look to the Lamb of God today. In Jesus' name. So here's where we're going to go in our, in our time together in the Word. This is the truth for the day. That our joyful partnership in the Gospel means three things. It's laid out here for us in this opening prayer of the book of Philippians. Paul loved to begin his letters with a prayer for the churches. The book of Colossians is a very similar uh, introduction to this. But there's something unique here in Paul's connection with the church at Philippi. We'll go deeper in that before we finish this morning. But he begins by saying to them that this joyful partnership in the gospel means that they are on his mind. He says, when I think about you and, and all of my remembrance, if you look at verse 3 there, I give thanks. The first thought in Paul's mind when he thought of the church at Philippi was he was pondering his gratitude for them. When I think of you, I am 
thankful. I hope everybody in this room, when you think of a certain individual or maybe a group of people, that there's somebody in your life that God has put there that just the mere thought of them produces in your heart gratitude. Could somebody affirm that this morning and just say, yes, I, I, when I just think of this person or this group of people, it produces in me gratitude. And Paul is saying to the church at Philippi, you produce in me heartfelt gratitude. I am thankful just when I think of you and I think of you often. So he's pondering gratitude. But then he goes on in the next verse, in verse 4, and he begins pondering his gladness, pondering this joy. It's the first mention of more than a dozen mentions of joy throughout this book. It's, this is a book full of the joy of the gospel. He says, always in every prayer of mine for you, making my prayer with joy, with gladness. This joy is a deep, heartfelt attitude this is not a circumstantial happiness. This is a deep, heartfelt attitude that's based in the work of God and the gospel. If you get the gospel, you get joy. If you got a gospel that was devoid of joy, you didn't really get the gospel. That's where Paul's going here. And so we want to go there as well. I love Martin Luther's quote. It's so simple, and yet it's so true. The gospel, he says, is nothing less than laughter and joy. Now understand, he's not saying that's all it is. But he's saying, this is foundational. The gospel is nothing less than laughter and joy. It's a whole lot more than that. But it's nothing less than that. And so if you, again, if you got a gospel that was devoid of joy, you got the wrong deal. If you invested in a joyless Jesus, you missed it. And we don't want you to miss it. Because to miss Him is to miss everything. There's joy to be found here. We want you to see it. So he ponders his gratitude for them, his gladness in their gospel partnership. And that brings him to pondering their collaboration. He's looking at the church at Philippi and he's seeing in his midst these co-laborers. Now remember, at this point, Paul is in jail. He says, remember me in my chains. He was in a real jail. This is not a, a metaphorical jail. He was in a Roman prison chained between two Roman centurions. And he is writing this two and a half page thank you note to the church at Philippi. Now I don't know about you, but if I'm in a Roman prison, I'm probably not thinking a whole lot about sending out thank you notes. But this is where Paul's heart was. Because he loved them. And because the joy of the Lord was his strength, even in the darkest of days. And so look what he says there in verse 5. And so he says, because, I'm, I'm praying with joy for you, why? Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. What's he saying? First of all, that word partnership is the Greek word koinonia. Say that with me. Koinonia. Okay, this is a Greek word that's, that's all over this book as well. And the word literally means to share in common. That there was a commonness in their experience in Christ that was bringing about in them a unity that went above and beyond every other kind of relationship. So here's what koinonia means for the followers of Jesus Christ. If you count yourself among that number this morning, if you've been saved by the grace of the cross, His blood poured out as we sang a few minutes ago. If His blood was poured out for you and has cleansed you of your sins and you enjoy a right relationship with God through Jesus Christ, if that's you this morning, then you've been invited into koinonia. And here's what that means. 
That means that you have more in common with a believer in South Africa this morning who's walking with Jesus than you do with somebody who lives under your roof who is not. Now take that in for a moment because I'm going to step on some toes here because I know we love family. But I want you to understand that this word koinonia and the way that Paul is using it means that there is something that trumps family because of the gospel. The reality of the gospel is that your family may endure to the end of this earth, but after that, there's a new family on the block. One to which you've been invited to, not just in pie the sky by and by, but in the here and now. And that's why this God who loves the orphans and the widows, those who are without family, is so focused on them. And drawing them into this place where he calls the early church, he says, go care for the orphans and the widow, care for the familyless. Because that's the heart of God. Because he's creating a new family. And this reality speaks to this point that you have more in common with a believer in India today who is walking with Jesus Christ than you have with someone who may even share your bed every night if they're not walking with Jesus. One of our one of my brothers in Christ gave a testimony this week, and I, I won't share all of it, but the part that stood out to me was this. He was talking about a time in his life and he was wrestling over a particular relationship he's involved in with, uh, with a young lady, and they had everything in common. Like the same music, and enjoyed the same kinds of things. Everything, everything just seemed to be clicking in that relationship of two plus years. But the one thing that was missing was he had faith in Christ and she did not. He tried to share the gospel with her, tried to bring her to faith in Christ, he tried to do all of those things that, that we would do in that situation, loving someone, desiring for them to know Jesus. But at the end, he was faced with a decision. Do I continue in this relationship where we have everything in common except for Jesus? Do I marry this woman or do I end this relationship? And God led him to the place where he ended that relationship. And a week later, God introduced him to a woman with whom he had nothing in common except Jesus. And they are happily married to this day. Now, it sounds like just a happy ending story that I'm sharing with you, and in some ways it is that, but here's the point. What you share in common, this koinonia that we have with one another as believers, is a bigger commonality than anything else in your life. It's bigger than the commonality of your favorite sports team. It's bigger than the commonality of your profession. It's bigger than the the commonality of where you grew up. It's bigger than the commonality of your language. It's bigger than the commonality of your skin color. This commonality, this sharing in common, this koinonia means you have been drawn in to a new family that now trumps every other relationship that you have. And that includes the folks that you share a lot of your genetic code with. Now, I know I'm stepping on some toes when I start talking about this stuff. But you need to see this for what it is. Because the danger is that we would see the church just simply as a Sunday morning gathering. In fact, I want to use the word that is often translated, quantity is often translated fellowship. 
Here's what I thought of fellowship growing up. I grew up in a Baptist church, very Baptist church, not even like this one. We were very Baptist. Okay? We had a certain way we talked, walked, dressed, the whole nine yards. And when I heard fellowship, here's what I thought about. We're going to have cookies and punch after the service. <laughs> or better yet, here's the height of fellowship. The ice cream social. Because there was an older lady in our church that made homemade ice cream that beat Baskin-Robbins into the ground. And when I heard fellowship, that meant we're going to get snacks. We're going to eat. We're going to have some time together. That was my picture of fellowship. We have watered down that word to where it means cookies and punch. And what it means in the reality, this koinonia, this fellowship means that you have been invited into a family, drawn into a family, rescued into a family that trumps every other relationship. That what you have in Christ with someone who is polar opposite from you is more important than what you have with someone who may even be your twin, genetically speaking, if they're apart from Christ. To have Christ in common means you have everything in common. Are you hearing me, church? I'm not just talking about a Sunday morning gathering here. I'm talking about a family of faith that will last for all eternity. By the way, young people, I want to talk to you for a minute. Because I made some mistakes in this area. I need you to understand. I need you to understand from my own experience. That in choosing those that you will date, that you will connect yourself with, those that you will choose to have a koinonia type relationship with. Whether that's your peer group or whether that's your boyfriend or your girlfriend. The most important thing about that individual is this. Do they love Jesus? If that's not there, I don't care how hot they are. I'm shooting straight with you this morning because I made the mistake. My very first dating relationship was a girl that I thought was really hot. She was a cheerleader. All that kind of good stuff was going on there. But she didn't know Jesus. And it wrecked my relationship with the Lord for a year and a half while we dated. I know we love all this dating evangelism kind of stuff. Well, I'll just lead them to Christ. Here's the reality. Is your pastor's life? No. She led me away from the Lord. And I'm not, and I'm not blaming her. I allowed that to happen because I entered into koinonia with someone that I never should have been in koinonia with. By the way, that goes for the adults in the room as well. Examine your closest relationship, your circles of influence, those who have a bearing on the way that you think, the way that you make decisions. And if those folks don't have an intimate love relationship with the Jesus that you serve and worship, and you need to rethink those relationships. Now, I know there's a lot of hard stuff in this. I, I'm not trying to make it easy this morning. And I know some of you are in that place where, where you do share intimate relationships with those who don't love Christ like you do. I know that. And, and my heart is burdened for you in that. And the Bible doesn't say you just cut off those relationships. You do seek to love them to the Lord. But I'm talking about those places where we choose those that we will spend time with. Where we choose those that we'll enter into relationships with. And the choice that we make needs to be based in what Paul is laying out here saying. What you have in the gospel should trump everything else in your decision making. really a deeper look at the church than what most of us understand. Co-laborers in the gospel. Finally, in verse 6, 
he's pondering his confidence in that very gospel. Now we all know Philippians 1.6. This is one of those, well, Matt Chandler calls it a coffee cup verse. It's one of those you can put on a coffee cup. I, I would call it a t-shirt verse or a life verse. It's one of those that everybody's heard. And he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. You've all, you all heard this verse. But what we like to do with these verses is we rip them out of their context. And we tend, as Americans, we tend to individualize them. He began a good work in me. And he, I know that he'll complete it. That's not what the verse says. Look at verse 6. He who began a good work in you, by the way, in you in English can be singular or plural. In the Greek, this is definitely plural. He who began a good work in you, church. He who began a good work in you, family of faith. He who began a good work in you, he will complete it. Now, yes, you can apply that to your individual walk with the Lord, but please don't go to that place where your faith is so individualized that you miss this necessary corporate aspect. The church is not optional equipment in the Christian life. Amen. You will neither grow in Christ nor will you truly walk with Him apart from His church because that's His design and plan. And He who began that good work in His church will complete it. That's His promise. That's the confidence we have in the gospel. And so what does the church do as a result of that confidence? Look at Acts 2.42. It says they devoted themselves. They set their heart and mind upon. They, they were running after, pursuing, going. That's the word devoted means. All those things. They were wrapped up in this. And it's so simple. The apostles teaching the word of God. Faithfully teaching the word of God. That's foundational for His church. The fellowship, that's the word koinonia that we've been talking about. The commonality of the gospel, this new family we've entered into, they were devoted to that. Even if it meant in the first century, it literally meant for so many, your family's going to reject you because you've claimed love for Jesus. But now God is drawing you into a new family that's better anyway. Fellowship. To the breaking of bread, there's something that happens around the dinner table when God shows up with His people, the breaking of bread becomes a holy thing. Even if it's party with the pastors and, the, and pizza and cake, something special begins to happen. And the prayers, we'll come back to the prayers in a minute, but this is foundational. Beginning and end, the Word of God and prayer, foundational to this koinonia, foundational to His church. And this is where joy is found. So Paul says, you're in my mind, and then we've Dwelt a long time there, so let me go on to the next point. You are in my heart. Some people, when they when they read Paul, they see this deep theologian who really doesn't seem to be much of a people person in any way. I would challenge you to look at verses seven and eight. Listen to what he's writing here. He said, "It's right for me to feel this way about you." No deep theology here, just intense love for them because I hold you in. My heart. For you are all partakers with me. There's that word koinonia again. Partakers, fellowship, partnership. Partakers with me of grace. What kind of grace? Look at what he says. Both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. So let me give you just real quick a little background on how Paul came to have this kind of love for the church of Philippi. It takes us back to Acts chapter 16. 
the context of Acts 16 occurs in Acts 15. There was a, a council called the Jerusalem Council, and the church was wrestling over this question. What do we do with all these Gentiles that are coming to faith in Christ? Up to that point, it had been all Jews. Jews were coming to faith in Jesus as their Messiah, and they were maintaining their Jewishness, their Old Testament character, their Old Testament laws. They were maintaining their Jewishness, and they were now worshiping Jesus. But now you get all these Gentiles, all these Greeks and Romans and others who are coming to Jesus, and they don't have this Jewish heritage. And so the church was wrestling with in those early days, what do we do with all these crazy Gentiles that are coming to know Christ? Do they need to enter in through the doors of Judaism? Do they need to become Jewish in their customs and their dress and their, and their eating habits? Do they need to adopt Judaism in order to have Jesus? And man, I'd have loved to have been in that room. A fly on the wall to hear those arguments that were going back and forth. But ultimately, the church got it right. And praise be to God, because today, we're not walking around with tassels on our coats. Unless it's graduation day, that's a whole different story. We're not walking around and not being able to eat certain foods because of our Jewishness. They got it right and they said, you don't have to come to Judaism before you come to Jesus. We're saved by grace through faith. It's not a work. It's not about your nationality. It's not about your cultural background. It's about what Christ did at the cross. And so we can rejoice in that Gentile. This is a reason for our rejoicing. Anybody who's not a Jew of Jewish background is a Gentile. So you're counted among that number today. And you did not have to come to Jesus through Judaism. That ought to be a cause for rejoicing, by the way. Because some of us like to eat pigs. In fact, I kind of like it a lot. So, you know, life without bacon would be a little less joyful. So that's Acts 15. And then Acts 16, Paul goes out with this good news. The good news of the Jerusalem Council. Gentiles, you don't have to become Jews first. You don't have to walk according to the law first. You don't have to do these things to measure up first. Jesus died for you and that was sufficient. His grace is sufficient for you. So come, all you who will, all you who are weary and heavy laden with the systems of this world, come to Jesus and find life in abundance. Find a life that's worth rejoicing about. It goes out with that message. Second missionary journey for Paul is going out. And his plan was this. I want to go back to all the churches that I planted and started on my first missionary journey and take them this good news that you don't have to become Jews in order to be Christians. That we're saved by grace through faith. It's been affirmed and we can rejoice that I want to go back and have this victory tour, basically. And so Paul gets to the city of Troas. Now geographically, for those of you who uh, are geographic folks, it's on the border of Turkey facing toward Europe. He gets to the city of Troas and he's praying to the Lord about this. He's getting ready to, to, to head east into Asia. That's where his first missionary journey was. He's getting ready to head east into Asia. And the Bible says in Acts 16 that the Spirit of God forbid him. It's a very strong word. The Spirit of God forbid him to go to Asia. Nope. No Asia for you, Paul. So Paul's continuing in prayer and decides, well, maybe we'll go to Bithynia. That's the next region over from Asia. Maybe we'll just go into Bithynia and minister there. There's churches we started there. We can continue our work there. We can spread this good news there. And the spirit of Jesus, the Bible says, again, forbid him to go to Bithynia. So here's the picture. 
Paul is wanting to go after a good thing. He's wanting to go and share this good news, uh, the good news of the gospel, the good news of what happened at the Jerusalem Council. He's wanting to go uh, on this victory tour and proclaim, start new churches, do all those things in the region of Asia and then in Bithynia. And God says no. Here's a point of application. How do you respond when God says no to a good thing? Now we all, we all have experienced, I hope, if you've been walking with Jesus very long, I hope you've experienced God saying no to a lot of bad things. That's not what we're talking about here. Paul has a a God-honoring desire to take the gospel deeper in Asia, to take it as far east as he could go. He would have gone all the way to Japan, no doubt, taking that gospel. And God says no. Here would have been your pastor's response. What's the deal, God? Don't I have an awesome desire here to go and take the gospel to people that have never heard it before? To go back to these churches and affirm them in their gospel ministry work? To go back to those who have partnered with me? Don't I have a good desire here, God? And I probably would have gone to bed that night just a little bit upset with the Lord. That's probably a, a small picture of it. The Bible says that Paul went to bed that night, and in the night, he had a dream. He had a dream of a man from Macedonia, which was not to the east, but to the west. A man in Macedonia was crying out and saying, come over here and help us. Now, believer, let me blow your mind for just a moment. You are sitting here today as a result of that dream. The whole history of the world changed in that moment. Because while Paul was headed east with the gospel into China, into India, all the way to Japan, while Paul was headed east, the Holy Spirit forbid him and instead sent him to the west. And we sit here today because of that Holy Spirit-led decision. Who were the first Christians that came to America, folks? Where did they come from? Europe. And who was the first church in Europe? I'm glad you asked. Philippi. So here's how it goes down. Paul says, okay, we'll go over to Macedonia. We'll cross over the sea here. We'll go into Macedonia, into a region we've never been before. And he goes to this first city of Philippi, which is not necessarily a really big place, but it was a very, very Roman place. Roman in their culture and their dress and every part of Roman culture. In fact, Philippi was considered like a miniature Rome itself. And he goes there. And if you know anything about Paul's ministry, here's the second frustration. Paul's way of doing ministry was this. Go to a new place and what's the first thing you're going to look for? Synagogue. You're going to go to the synagogue first. Here's Paul's program for reaching out to new cities. Go into the city, find the synagogue. Wait till the Sabbath day when it's an opportunity for you to go and preach the word and then proclaim Jesus to them. And keep proclaiming Jesus in the, in the synagogue until what happens? Until the Jews kick you out. And it happened every time. The Jews would get fed up with it. They want to hear any more about Jesus. They're sick of Paul. Kick him out. And so then what does Paul do? He goes out on the streets and begins to proclaim Jesus on the streets, in the marketplaces, at the gates, wherever anyone will stop and listen. He begins to proclaim Jesus on the streets until what happens? So they kick him out or stone him or imprison him, beat him half to death, any number of things that happened. And then Paul would finally leave that city, go on to the next place, but he would leave behind one of his 
partners in the gospel, he'd leave behind a Silas, a Timothy, a Titus to tidy up the work in that city in that new, newly birthed church. And then they would join him on his mission in the next place. This was the program. Find the synagogue, preach till they kick you out. Go on the streets, preach till they kick you out. And then go on to the next place. That was the program. But what happens when he gets to Philippi? There's no stinking synagogue. How do we start a gospel ministry here in Philippi and there's no synagogue? The program is not going to work. You had to have ten Jewish men living in a city to qualify for a synagogue. Ten. That's how few Jews there were among the 10,000 that lived in Philippi. There weren't even enough men to have a synagogue. You can imagine, if I was Paul, man, I'm stewing at this point. I am steaming. God, what's the deal? I wanted to go deep into Asia. I want to take the gospel east. I had all these great plans. And you sent me over to here to stink in Macedonia, to the most Roman of Roman places, other than Rome itself, to Philippi, a place they don't even have a synagogue. And then on that Sabbath, Paul walks outside the gates of the city. And he sees a small little prayer gathering of women. Just a little prayer gathering down by the riverside. Something that me and my own anger and bitterness in that moment might have overlooked. But led by the Holy Spirit, Paul went up among those ladies and he met a lady named Lydia. Who was a worshiper of the God of the Bible, but she had not been introduced to Jesus. Listen to Acts 16, 14. Paul begins to proclaim the gospel, Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. He says, one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. She, she believed in the God of the Bible. She had an Old Testament type faith, but she had not met the Messiah. And the Lord, listen to this, listen to this. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Believer, that's your testimony. One day the Lord opened your heart to hear what God was saying. One day He infected you with the joy of the gospel. One day He gave you sight where you had no sight. He gave you hearing where you had no hearing. He took your rock-hard heart and replaced it with a heart of flesh that now beats for Him. It was His work from beginning to end. He who began a good work in you will what? We'll bring it to completion. This is where joy is found. And so the first believer in all of Europe, Philippi was the first church ever planted in Europe. Philippi, and, and the first believer is this white-collar businesswoman named Lydia. We fast forward to the next few days. And as Paul is proclaiming the gospel in the streets, because there is no synagogue, this demon-possessed slave girl begins coming along behind him and mocking him. Now her, her owners, her, her employers, were using her demon-given abilities to predict the futures of others. It was kind of a fortune-telling scheme that was going on. And Paul looks at her, rebukes that demon, casts it out, and the inclination that we see in the Scriptures is she becomes believer number two in Europe. So now you've got white-collar businesswoman, and you've got formerly demon-possessed slave girl. What do these two have in common? Nothing but their gender. Fast forward a couple more days, actually not long, a few more hours actually. The owners of the slave girl get a little upset because now their source of income is gone. 
There's no more fortune teller. And so they have Paul and his companion Silas thrown into prison. This is a great welcome to Europe, right? You brought me here to Philippi. There's no synagogue. All you gave me was this, this band of women praying down by the riverside. And now this formerly demon-possessed slave girl. They're thrown into prison, beaten and thrown into prison. And in the middle of the night, Paul and Silas are awake and they're singing hymns of praise to God. Now that's crazy, right? That's nuts. I mean, many of us, we'd be embittered towards God. What's the deal, God? I want to go to Asia. I want to start a revival in Asia. I want to go all the way to Japan. You know what Japan was. I want to go as far as I can go. And so there's no more places to go. Proclaim this gospel. Instead, you send me over here to Europe, and i got nothing to show for it except for I'm in prison now. But they're singing praises to God and rejoicing in what God had already done. Because you see, they knew the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. It always starts small. And in the night, the angel of the Lord came and blew open those jail cell doors so much so that the jailer, he is freaked out, man. Because here's what happens. If you're a jailer in that day and you let one of the prisoners go, it's their life. It's your life or theirs. So he's getting ready to take his own life because he knows the Romans are going to do a whole lot worse. They may, they may crucify me. They may do any number of things to me. So he's getting ready to take his own sword, slit his own throat. He's getting ready to kill himself in that moment. And Paul rushes out to him and says, don't harm yourself. We're all still here. And the jailer's response is what? What must I do to be saved? So now here's what you got in the church at Philippi. You got a white-collar businesswoman you got a formerly demon-possessed slave girl. And you got a Roman jailer. Folks, this is the island of misfit toys. I hope you get that reference. Some of you may be too young to get that reference. But you've seen Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. The island of misfit toys. Now, nobody, nobody wants this picture. This is the church at Philippi. The island of misfit toys. These folks, you're going, what are these? It's like the being of a bad joke. What, what do a white-collar businesswoman, a slave girl, and a Roman jailer have in common? The gospel. This is what you need to see, church. That this foundation of the gospel of Jesus Christ changed everything. To the point where ten years later, when Paul writes this letter to the church at Philippi, He's writing to a church that had experienced revival that broke out in Europe. Here's, here's the game changer. Paul wanted to go to Asia and take the gospel and, and God forbid him and send it to Philippi where there was no synagogue. Gave him some random band of women to preach the gospel to. He starts with these few converts that are just this ragtag, ragtag band of misfit toys. But God used it to bring revival to Europe. And you are sitting here today if you know Jesus Christ. You are sitting here today on the shoulders of giants who took the gospel where it had never been proclaimed to the point that you know Christ today because of what happened in Acts 16. Folks, if that didn't produce joy or awe or something in you, you're missing it. I don't want you to miss it this morning. If nothing else, may you find joy in that day when he opened your heart to pay attention. You're in my heart. Two things I wanted to say there. First of all, he says your partners 
and the grace of persecution. See what he's talking about, look at verse 7. You're partakers with me of grace. Here's the grace. Grace of salvation, right? No, listen. Both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Here's what Paul's saying. This is nuts, folks. My imprisonment is the grace of God. You're going, that's just crazy. There's a little bit of insanity in Christianity and you need to see it. It's necessary. He says, this is the grace of God. What has happened to me, we'll see it in the next section, what has happened to me has served to further the gospel. More people have heard about Jesus and God and come to salvation because of my imprisonment, so it's a grace of God. Whatever leads people to faith in Jesus Christ is the grace of God. Some of you are sitting here today because the bottom fell out of your life and it caused you to turn to Jesus. This is the grace of God. John Piper said the gospel is the news that Jesus Christ, the righteous one, he died for our sins and rose again eternally triumphant over all his enemies so that there is now no condemnation for those who believe, but only what? Everlasting joy. There it is, the gospel and joy. And once more today, if you got a gospel that wasn't wrapped up in joy, make the trade. Partners in the grace of persecution, also partners in the grace of proclamation. He does, it says right there in the end of verse verse 7. In my defense and confirmation of the gospel, proclaiming this good news. Why? Because that's what you do with good news. A baby is born and it's all over Facebook and we all have to see the pictures. Why? Because that's what you do with good news. Kentucky wins, and those who like to wear blue, they rejoice and they proclaim it. Others, they don't so much. Because that's what you do with good news. You were created as a proclaimer of good news. The only question is this. Will you, with your life, proclaim the best news? Will you proclaim the best news? I've often asked myself, why do we not see a stronger witness in the church in America today? We've been shamed into it. Everyone that's been in church very long knows you ought to be sharing Jesus with people. We hear it all the time. You ought to be witnessing. Well, here's what I've found about human nature. The you oughtas only go so far. But when you find joy in something, when you find joy in someone, people are going to hear about it, aren't they? An engagement ring goes on the finger and it's front page news in that person's life. And that is right. Perhaps the reason we don't proclaim this good news of Jesus Christ is because we miss the joy. Just a thought. John says if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have koinonia, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. That's reason enough for joy. Finally, he says, you are in my soul. You're in my mind, you're in my heart, you are in my very soul. He 
prays for them in these verses and these prayers. I want to encourage you as we look at look at these last few verses. I want to ask you, how do you pray for your brothers and sisters in Christ? So many of our prayers are wrapped up in, in health and safety and, and getting the job and, and, and entering into the new relationship and, and all those things. And none of those things are wrong. None of those things are bad. But I want you to see what Paul prays because this, this is where the heart of true gospel-centered prayer for one another is. This is how I hope we'll begin to pray for one another. First of all, he makes prayers for their passion and their proficiency. I wish we had time to linger here because it's so powerful. But he says, it's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with what? With knowledge and all discernment. So here's the picture. He's saying, I'm I'm praying that your love is going to be like a geyser. If you've ever been out to Yellowstone and seen Old Faithful, that your love is going to be like a geyser that just sprays up to heaven in praise of God and then falls to the ground and floods all those that are around. That your love is going to abound more and more. First of all, that vertical love between you and God, like a geyser to the heavens, but then as it falls down around you, that others are going to be so impacted by that, that your love is going going to abound both vertically and horizontally. Horizontally because of the vertical. That you're going to flood people with this love. This is not just any old love. This is a love that's based in knowledge. The word here that's used for knowledge is a word that is only used one way in the New Testament. It's always the knowledge of God in Jesus Christ. It's always that. Frank Sheen said it would be a strange God who could be loved better by being known less. And yet that's what we so often see in our churches today. Folks professing to love God and yet they know little to nothing about Him. And they bought into the law that you don't really need to read your Bible. You don't really even need to go to church consistently. You just need to profess love for Jesus and that will be enough. But here's the strange thing. In any other relationship in your life, have you ever experienced a love that's devoid of knowledge? Loving someone that you don't know. It's pretty hard. And even if you would say, well, I think I might have experienced that, here's where I would challenge you. How has your love for someone grown? Love grows through knowledge. The more I get to know my wife, the more I love her. You say, well, the more I get to know my spouse, the more I see things I don't love so much. Yeah, there's a phase in that. But here's the thing that happens. She could tell you some stories. There's the thing that happens, though. Over time, even those things that I once thought, wow, that's kind of gross. You begin to find that those are the very things that you know you would miss if they were removed from this earth. Some of you are shaking your head because you get it. The same is true of God, folks. Our love of God is spurred on by our knowledge of God, and our knowledge of God spurs on our love for God. And these two are linked hand in hand. And I want to say to you this morning, please don't even try to love a God that you don't really know. 
That's where it starts for all of us. I know what I'm saying to you is you have to grow in the knowledge of God. And that means reading His Word. That means meditating upon His Word. That means studying His Word because this is the revelation of who He is. This is God's love letter to you saying, this is who I am. Draw near to me in love. I encourage you in that. So prayers for passion and proficiency goes on to make prayers for practicality and for purity. This is not just knowledge and for its own sake, but it's a knowledge that works itself out in wisdom. The discernment that he's talking about here is it's not just the difference between right and wrong. So many people see Christianity as the dividing line between right and wrong. We're the upholders of morality. That is not biblical Christianity. Biblical Christianity is not the dividing line between right and wrong. It's the dividing line between what is good and what is best. You might want to write that one down, by the way. There's a whole lot of confusion, even as we're approaching Election Day in November. We speak about things like the moral majority, which I now think is the moral minority. We, we, we speak about these ideas as if those are what Jesus was all about. We're the people who are against bad stuff. No. Yes, we are the people who are against bad stuff, but if that's all we are, we miss the gospel. That's the humdrum, gloom and despair, Eeyore Christianity, and I'm inviting you to something greater. It's not just turning away from sin, it's trusting in Christ who paid your pain. It's not just repentance, though repentance is necessary. It's repentance and faith. The faith that's wrapped in joy. Once again, if you got a gospel that was devoid of joy, I'm afraid you missed Jesus. Because for the joy set before Him, He endured the cross for you. He didn't save your soul from hell so you could experience E or Christianity. Finally, he makes prayers for produce and praise. He says, I'm praying that you'll be filled with the fruit of righteousness. This is like a tree that's heavy laden with fresh, ripe apples. He says, I'm going to you to be filled with this fruit of righteousness. He's going to describe what that is through these next four chapters. And that comes through who? Through Jesus Christ. Into the glory and praise of God's where he ends. This place of praise. Why do we worship Him? Because that's just what you do on Sunday, right? If that's all you know of Him, if that's all you've got of His grace and the gospel, make a trade. He has so much more for you. He has so much more for you than Sunday morning attendance. He wants to transform your heart and your life. He wants to teach you to love like you've never loved before. And that love is going to bear with it some deep suffering. By the way, that's not even a warning. That's an encouragement. Because some of you are walking in that place right now. Well, you're suffering deeply, but you're experiencing the love of God like you never have before. By the way, that's not an oddity. That's how it's supposed to be. And so I'll close with this prayer. In 1 Corinthians 13, sorry, 2 Corinthians 13. 
Paul prays, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Once again, corporately, the body of Christ, the church, the family of faith is saying, this is what I'm praying for you. I'm praying that you would know the grace of God in Jesus Christ, that he died on the cross for your sins to bring you life, life abundant, life eternal. Jesus said, I came that they may have life in its fullness. You will not find joy in the things of this world. Stop looking there and look to Jesus. In the love of God. That agape, self-sacrificing love, the love that exists for the good of the beloved. And the fellowship, the koinonia of the Holy Spirit that we experience in fellowship with one another as we become co-laborers with Christ in this gospel ministry, as we take the gospel to those who are hungering and thirsting to hear it, as we take joy to where there was no joy. This is what you've been called to. How will you respond? You bow your heads with me for a moment. I know we've covered a lot of ground. There's so much here, and we didn't even get to everything that is in these 11 verses. There's so much. But I want to I ask you just a few simple questions in the quietness of this moment. If you would say today that you are a recipient of the gospel. That you claim Jesus as your Savior. That you've been rescued from sin and death. Then I have to ask you this. Where is your joy? If you were saved by Jesus but you're still finding ounces of joy in the things of this world when He's wanting you to dwell in tons of joy in His kingdom. Make a trade today. No relationship will satisfy like the one with Him. No grace will be sufficient like His. Again, we're not just talking about the difference between the good and the bad here. We're talking about the difference between the good and the best. And your God is calling out to you, urging you toward the best. Saying, come away from the things of this world. They'll never satisfy you. Your Creator wants you to be satisfied and knows that you will only be satisfied in Him. And so look to Jesus the author and the perfecter of your faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross and scorned its shame and is even now in this moment seated at the right hand of God in glory. And He is calling you out to joy. He is calling you out to grace. He's calling you out to love. He's calling you out to koinonia. Will you hear His call and will you respond? This is not my invitation. This is His. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and wrapped up in that heart 
is a joy like you've never known if you don't know him. Father, help us. Lead us in the joy of the gospel in this moment. May we respond to you by faith. Turning from the things of this world, from our sin, the death that accompanies it, and turning to Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. We've got a couple of quick things we want to do before we exit today. I just want to give you this encouragement. If you were one who bought into a joyless gospel, make the trade. And you say, how do I do that? You look to Jesus. It's so simple. If you bought into this lie that by obeying rules and regulations, by doing all the right things and avoiding all the wrong things, that you would find joy and peace and contentment, and you've seen the lie in that, look to Jesus. See what He did for you at the cross. See the confirmation of His love and that He poured out His blood to cover your sins. So that he could make that promise that he who began a good work and you would complete it. You say, dude, that work looks like two steps forward and three steps back most days. Me too. But praise be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. He gives the victory. And in that, we rejoice. If you'd like to talk with us further about that, we're nothing but ordinary men, but we do know a God who does extraordinary things. And I'll linger after the service today if you'd like to speak with us for a minute. There's nothing holy about us. But we do know Jesus, and it would be our privilege to share it with you today.